Chapter 9. This is Western Civilization? Belfast, Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is a tough place. Always has been. It's even tough to describe. Physically, it is situated at the far northeastern tip of the island called Ireland, which is to the west of Great Britain, its sister island in the British Isles. However, a country called Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, occupies the bulk of Ireland, but not Northern Ireland. In short, most of Ireland is Ireland, but not all of it, not Northern Ireland. Get it? And Northern Ireland is the place we're talking about here. Although a land of rolling hills and lovely lakes full of fish, Northern Ireland has precious few exploitable natural resources, and therefore always has had to depend on manufacturing and service industries for its living. It also is plagued with sometimes ceaseless rain. In the heyday of the Industrial Revolution, Northern Ireland flourished because labor was cheaper than in England, the dominant part of Great Britain to keep the geography course going, across the Irish Sea. That meant greater levels of prosperity for management and lower levels of poverty for workers. Lower, but because of universally cheap wages, never gone. Worse still, by the later part of the 20th century, all but the smallest contracts available for heavy machinery, shipbuilding, and finished goods had dried up. Northern Ireland would die without subsidies from the outside. For a long time now, the outside has been Great Britain, which is really a collection of the once independent nations of England, Scotland, and Wales. For centuries, England, and then its parent country, Britain, ruled all of Ireland. But after decades of bloody conflicts over control of the island, it was politically split in two. Two uneven halves. In 1920, the overwhelmingly Catholic Republic of Ireland was established over most of the island, while the six northeastern counties called Ulster, many of whose citizens descended from the Protestant English industrialists, became an adjunct to Great Britain called Northern Ireland. But the bloody conflict in Northern Ireland didn't end. With Protestants in the majority by a proportion of roughly two to one, Catholics felt economically enslaved, oppressed, and ignored. Militants in the Catholic communities argued that they would never have equal rights as long as Northern Ireland was ruled by Great Britain. Eventually, terrorist groups evolved, the most prominent of which was called the Irish Republican Army, best known by its initials, the IRA. Its goal, pursued by committing terrorist acts in Northern Ireland and in England itself, was to force the British to pull out. Protestant terrorist groups, equally hateful and equally vicious, grew up in response. The British government in London has long been in a quandary over Northern Ireland. On the one hand, it has pledged to keep its hold on the province at the behest of Protestants there who still fear they would be violently overrun by Catholics if British soldiers leave. On the other hand, Northern Ireland has cost Great Britain dearly. It has cost lives. It has cost money. It has cost political stock. Some politicians believe it must be abandoned in the long-term interest of what's left of the British Empire. Others argue 
that Britain must never abandon its trust. From time to time, there have been negotiations that led to hopes for peace, even periods of peace. But from time to time, one of the violent splinter groups on one side or the other dashed them. It was true for a long time. Although the IRA joined its longtime enemies in a Northern Ireland parliament to govern the province, that didn't end the enmity. Seen as a sellout for its ceasefire, the IRA was then challenged by the real IRA, which was still committing acts of violence in opposition to the two sides sitting together. In March 2009, the real IRA killed two British soldiers. The beat went on. Although it's unfair to indict an entire population for the behavior of a minority, it was hard not to think of Northern Ireland as a sad excuse for Western civilization. The police, known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or RUC, had to ride around in armored military vehicles with iron mesh protecting the glass. British soldiers, who were stationed there ostensibly to maintain peace in the province, were the targets of violence more often than any other group. For a long time, to enter the main shopping street in downtown Belfast, you had to pass through a metal detector or be personally frisked for bombs. And when terrorists from one religion managed to kill targets from another, they were hailed as heroes. Go afterward to their neighborhood pubs and in all likelihood, you would hear them glorified in song. You still will today. It was a sad excuse for Western civilization. Even the 20th century's all-time best pitchman, Tom Baudet, I mean, if he can sell Motel 6, he can sell anything. Even Tom Baudet couldn't sell strangers on the Europa Hotel, where most journalists used to stay. Sure, it was about the best in Belfast. Clean rooms, decent food, modern phones, lively pub. But even Tom Baudet couldn't sell it because, first of all, it had been bombed so often that every guest had to get searched every time he or she came in, which tends to chill your typical tourist. And because, secondly, who'd want to go to Belfast? The city was downright depressing. Consider the urban landscape. Most days, the range of weather runs from fog to rain. Most homes are built of brick, deep red brick, stained by the soot of coal. Dark skies, dark facades. Even in the best of times, the place isn't particularly cheery. Making matters worse, terrorist groups on each side for decades devoted their energies to laying traps for the other. The result? No man's lands developed in the main cities of Belfast and Londonderry. They were depressingly ugly. Where Catholic and Protestant neighborhoods once had faced each other in peace, if not in friendship, buildings along these urban borders eventually were boarded up, abandoned, all the better to define the dividing lines between the two groups. And what you didn't see to depress you, you could feel. Hate hung around the community like wallpaper. One night in 1981, in the course of covering a riot in Belfast, I saw this hate in its genesis. We were on the Falls Road, the main road of Belfast's poorest Catholic section. Catholics, 
both those who supported the Irish Republican Army and those who did not, were incensed at the gruesome death of an imprisoned IRA terrorist named Bobby Sands. He had starved himself until he died, the first of the so-called hunger strikers to go. Many rioters were throwing incendiary devices, a.k.a. Molotov cocktails, at the almost entirely Protestant Royal Ulster Constabulary and the almost entirely Protestant British Army. It was nighttime, and maybe the first hour of the morning after, and things were only getting worse. Every time a police vehicle got hit, more plastic bullets flew from the barrels of police guns, which made the rioters madder, which encouraged the ones tossing Molotov cocktails to toss some more. Now let me point out the obvious. Molotovs are dangerous. Not just because they can be thrown rather wildly, but because when they hit and the bottle of burning gasoline breaks, it can spread. Get a splash on your skin and the skin is history. My camera crew and I liked our skin. All of it. We wanted to keep it. Therefore, we wanted to stay out of range. But at one point several hours into the riot, we got caught well within range with no place to run except the alley. We had learned earlier that alleyways were not a sure thing for safety because rioters were using them for ambushes. They would lay in wait for an RUC vehicle or an army unit to roar boldly up the street, then dash out and attack from behind. We had learned about this some hours earlier when we hastily chose an alleyway as a safe haven and jumped right into the heart of a roving mob of Molotov cocktail makers. We jumped in. They jumped us. Only some quick shouting had saved us. But this time, later on in the riot, burning gasoline was a sure thing. The alleyway was only a risk. We took it. Sure enough, a small band of Catholics was in the alley making Molotovs but not to throw on the street. They were throwing them at each other. It was a small band of small Catholics. These were little kids, maybe four years old, maybe five, six at the oldest. And where we might have played cowboys and Indians when we were children, they were playing Catholics and Protestants for real. These little kids were swearing the same slogans they could hear on the streets. They were making miniature but authentic Molotov cocktails. The ones who played the role of Catholics were elated to score against the Protestant enemy. Hate was growing in that alleyway. But it hadn't fertilized there. It had fertilized on the day of birth, maybe earlier, who knows. If prejudice is part of a man, can't it become part of his offspring? Especially if it is infused from the beginning. In Northern Ireland, it is hate deeply held and, for some, never released. Catholic hunger strikers were willing to die rather than let go of their hate. Protestant jailers were willing to allow it rather than let go of theirs. These were ugly deaths. Don't get me wrong. I have seen all sorts, and none is nice. But some are harder to watch than others. These were the worst. Catholic terrorists held in the prison called Long Kesh, more commonly called the Maze, demanded to be reclassified as political prisoners. The authorities refused to do it. The prisoners began a protest by refusing to wear prison uniforms any longer and walked around wrapped only in blankets or nothing at all. Then, 
they refused to clean their cells and wiped their own feces all over the walls. Then they stopped eating. Hunger strikers throughout history have survived for months on water alone, sometimes laced with a touch of sugar. That is a serious protest, but not inevitably a mortal one. But the hunger strikers in the maze refused everything. They vowed not to consume a single morsel provided by the prison authority that they now refused to recognize. They would let neither food nor fluid pass between their lips. Refuse just food, and you get weak. Refuse fluid, too, and you also become dehydrated. First the skin goes dry and flaky, and blood vessels begin to pop through. Then the eyes dry up, and you go blind. Then the brain, which cannot function without fluid, withers. The hunger striker turns delirious, then dies. That's hate. The hunger strikers must have hated an awful lot to suffer through that, and those who allowed it must have hated an awful lot to watch. Bobby Sands was the first to die. The riot followed, then the wake. ABC had two correspondents in Belfast covering the troubles, Mike Lee and me. We went together to the wake. Sure, we had ulterior motives. We were hoping to meet Sand's family members and convince them to appear on ABC's Sunday talk show. But we also were motivated by the natural curiosity of journalists. We wanted to see how a man looked after starving himself to death. We waited a long time in line, which stretched well out the door of the Sands' home and down the street, maybe 500 people in front of us. And by the time we reached the open casket, another 500 behind. I remember Mrs. Sands, standing there, weeping, looking down at the emaciated corpse of her son, weeping. Not a good time to ask for an interview. So we viewed the body hanged around long enough to get a feeling for the emotions in the crowd of mourners, and headed back to ABC's office at the Europa. Naturally, we weren't the only ones on ABC's staff to wonder how a dead hunger striker would look. Everyone wanted to know, and most wanted to go. Ultimately, Mike and I had gone without them, because the whole group decided to respect the family's grief as much as we could. Our concession to decency. But when Mike and I returned to the office, a question flew at us before we had our coats off. How did he look? And Mike, without missing a beat, answered, Hungry. Graveyard humor when the graveyard is busy isn't particularly appropriate, but in the midst of tension, it is never far from our lips. Actually, the most comical thing about this ugliest of deaths wasn't Mike's punchline. It was the funeral itself at least in retrospect. Tens of thousands of people had crowded into Milltown Cemetery in the heart of Catholic Belfast, probably tens of thousands more out on the streets. Catholics all, I would guess. It was a day for Protestants to go undercover. Anyone there without a rosary or a press card was a fool. The casket was carried by six men wearing IRA berets to the open grave. Bobby Sands' family, including his mother, still weeping, stood along one edge. A lone drummer in a ceaseless, mournful roll stood to the side. 
and standing at the other side a trio of armed gunmen, dressed and masked in black. Although the weapons were illegal, this was a tradition I saw practiced time and again at IRA funerals, a final salute, after which the gunmen would melt with their arms into a cooperative crowd, which by predetermined plan took from them and disassembled and concealed their weapons and their uniforms until the next time. TV cameras, perched on a wooden platform specially built just behind the family, overlooked it all. The pallbearers lowered the coffin to the hole. But it wouldn't go in. Too tight a fit. So in front of thousands at the gravesite and countless more watching live on TV all over the British Isles, they started stomping on the casket. A gentle prod here, a swift kick there. One man sat on the casket and tried to force it in with his rump. <laughs> but nothing worked. They couldn't nudge Bobby Sands into his grave. One corner had been cut too small. God save the gravedigger. They had to move the casket to the side and take up shovels. Mother weeping, drum rolling, gunmen waiting, cameras recording, pallbearers digging. Quite a scene. They carved a bigger corner and returned to the casket. Oh, no. Yet another corner was in the way. The third time, at least, they got it right. Bobby Sands' final resting place was his final indignity. That may have been the biggest funeral in the history of Northern Ireland. But then, the funeral just a week or two later for a milkman and his son may have been the second biggest. It was the consequence of another riot, the aftermath of another hunger striker's death. Altogether, there were ten. This time, Everyone knew what would happen when a prisoner died of starvation. People on both sides were waiting for the shoe to drop, and when it did, riots broke out all over Belfast, not just in Catholic neighborhoods, but in Protestant areas as well. That didn't stop the milkman. He was a Protestant who drove most of his route through a Catholic neighborhood. He always had, knew the people well, liked them, trusted them. Not everyone in Northern Ireland was a terrorist. His wife had tried to talk him into staying in. Too bloody dangerous, she later was quoted as saying. But a milkman feels the same responsibility as a postman, maybe more. Children can go a day without mail, but not without milk. So at four o'clock or so in the morning, the milkman set off on his rounds, and his teenage son, worried for his father's safety, got up and went along for protection. The milkman was loyal to his customers. The son was loyal to his dad. That's why they both got killed. Apparently, it was a Molotov cocktail. Maybe not meant for them. But those who saw it said it squarely hit the milk wagon, which wasn't much more than a three-wheeled golf cart with shells. It swerved and wrapped itself around a tree. The milkman and his son were killed instantly, the only two fatalities in the riot. This typifies the injustice of Northern Ireland. That night, there were combatants all over Belfast, angry men, mean men, Catholic and Protestant alike. Their only purpose was to hurt somebody. They all probably got home safely. The milkman and his son never got home again. And my camera crew and I almost didn't. When the milk wagon hit the tree, 
We were right around the corner covering some fighting. We heard the loud crash and went running. Ended up being the first ones there. The second ones were another ABC team. The third ones were the police. They didn't arrive in time to see us shouting for help for the man and the boy in the milk wagon. They didn't observe us checking the victim's pulses or for other signs of life. They didn't see us trying to chase the rioters to identify who might have been responsible. They only saw us recording the event, because by the time the police got there, the crew was videotaping and I was making notes. The damage couldn't be undone, and it was part of that night's story. The most horrible part. In the chaos of the night, they didn't arrest us, but they did suspect that we had staged the event for our camera, either paying someone to throw a firebomb at the milk wagon or throwing it ourselves. And they told their superiors, and their superiors told the authorities in London, and we were denounced the next day in Parliament. I never saw bad news travel so fast, and I was in the news business. A member of the Conservative Party, armed with an erroneous report he failed to check out by checking with us, stood up the next day in the House of Commons and read us, if you'll excuse the pun, the Riot Act. Worse still, he made us out to be perpetrators of the riot. The milkman and his son had been innocent victims, and we had become scapegoats, victims of circumstance ourselves. The fact is, the authorities in Northern Ireland don't like the news media, never have, probably never will. For example, once a crew and I got a typical rental car at the airport and drove out to County Armagh, the heart of terrorist territory, a region known to British soldiers who had to patrol it as the Triangle of Death. Plenty of cover for an ambush there, and plenty of safe houses for terrorists. Our mistake was the make of the car we rented, a Ford Cortina, the four-door model, the very same commonplace model favored by IRA terrorists whenever they'd hijack a vehicle to use in a crime. Plus, we fit the profile. Two men in front, one in back. The very same distribution typically favored by IRA terrorists in the commission of a crime. Why not just wave a gun in the air? Same result. We weren't five minutes into the county when we were stopped. Who are you? was question number one. Journalists from American television was our answer. End of friendly conversation. Our car keys were removed, our passports taken away, and an armored personnel vehicle from the Queen's Royal Army quickly took up position ten yards away to stand guard. What were they afraid we might do? Stab them with my ballpoint pen? Bind them in videotape? They detained us for three hours. When we got back to our base... I talked to some old-timers who had seen their share of suspected terrorists stopped on the road. If the detainees turned out to be bad guys, they were on their way to the slammer. But if they checked out okay, they were pretty quickly on their way, in 30 minutes, 60 max. Three hours for us. Journalists, they must have thought we were worse than terrorists because we were the ones everyone blamed for Northern Ireland's troubles as if by dropping back into our filthy subterranean cracks, everyone still on the surface would start to live in peace. There they go again, I've thought time and time again, blaming the messenger. We've seen it everywhere from Newsweek's report in 2005 about a Quran flushed down the toilet at Guantanamo, which led to fatal riots in Afghanistan 
to the Washington Post's intrepid Watergate reporting in the early 70s that brought down a president. Actually, blaming the messenger dates back to ancient Greece. In my experience, Clark Todd was the best example of how the messenger takes the rap. Clark was a correspondent for the commercial Canadian television network CTV. Although he covered much of Northern Ireland alongside me, eventually he died in the hills above Beirut and again, I was nearby. The last to go over a wall after getting trapped in the middle of a battle, he took some shrapnel in the back, fell to the bottom, and slowly bled to death on the spot. As he lay dying, Clark wrote a loving goodbye to his wife and five children, on the wall, in his own blood. It was dreadful, but whenever I picture Todd dying in Beirut, I think back to what happened to him in Belfast. It was during yet another riot, the one following the third or fourth consecutive hunger striker death. I don't even remember anymore. As we had done in Beirut and other places, Thanks to an association between CTV and ABC, Clark and I were working together, sharing a camera crew. The four of us were in the middle of a block as the rioters throwing firebombs stood their ground on one end, and the police with their rifles loaded with plastic bullets for crowd control started moving in from the other. We had a bit of a problem, though. No alleyway. The best we could do was pin ourselves as close as possible to the building at our backs. You may wonder, what were we scared of? Plastic bullets sound relatively harmless. No body-piercing metal, just a solid cylinder of plastic an inch across and maybe four inches long. But harmless they are not. In the early days of Northern Ireland's troubles, the police used rubber bullets, cylinders of the same dimensions fired from the same weapons. No fun to be hit by a high-powered, hard-packed rubber cylinder, but it wouldn't kill you. However, as they flew through the air, rubber bullets sometimes softened from the effects of their velocity and veered far from their distant targets. So, somebody who apparently had seen The Graduate, remember the line to Dustin Hoffman, plastics, my boy, plastics, had a brainstorm, replace rubber with plastic. Plastic wouldn't soften. It would hit its intended target. It would control the crowd. But there was a pesky little problem. Plastic bullets also could kill you. They were much harder than rubber. They had blown a few heads apart. I had seen it happen. A little girl caught in crossfire. A pretty little girl from her photograph. Not a pretty sight. So there we were, trapped in the middle of the block as the plastic bullets began to fly. Remember, they're supposed to go where the shooter wants them to go or pretty close. I saw it coming. I saw the policeman fire around toward the crowd, then reload, then aim again. But he glanced up and saw our contemptible TV camera just 50 yards away and turned his body in our direction. Just a subtle turn, subtle but certain. We were an easy target. More important, we were journalists. A better target. So he turned toward us aimed again, and fired. This was Western civilization? I shouted duck at everybody. Clark didn't quite duck in time. Nothing fatal, just a piece of his calf torn away. A piece almost as big as the cylinder itself. It took out lots of fat and a bit of bone, but thankfully, no major blood vessels. What I'll always remember 
and this is what still flies into my mind whenever I think of Clark's slow death in Beirut, are his words as he clutched his leg on that sidewalk in Belfast. Well, we've all got one bullet with our name on it. I've had mine. It's an important story. Important because it puts into perspective people's suspicions that journalists all have an agenda, which we were still hearing in the first several years of the Iraq War. Yes, they do. Their agenda is to cover the story. Any story. And sometimes to put their lives on the line to do it. And sometimes to lose.